0: We invite you to turn in your copy of the word to Psalm 27. We're continuing in our series in the Psalms as we have been. This is yet again a Psalm of David. You'll find he writes a few of these as you read through the Psalms. It's a psalm about fear. It's a psalm about worry. It's a psalm that tells us how to deal with fear and worry, anxiety, fretfulness. It's a good psalm, therefore, for a cold winter evening, like this one right here, for a nighttime church. So let's hear the word of David. Let's hear the word of our God. Let's hear. Beginning in verse 1. to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head will lift it up above all my enemies all around me. That's of the reading of God's holy, inspired, authoritative word. Let's pray and ask his blessing upon the hearing of the same word. Father, we come. Perhaps we're afraid. Perhaps we think we're smooth sailing through life. Regardless, Lord, give us this focus of David, this priority of David, this aim of David, this one thing he wants. Make his one thing our one thing to gaze upon you, to seek your face, to love you. Help us to grasp what that means in this hour we have together. And May your spirit be dwelling within and among us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As I said, this is a book about, uh, this is a psalm about worry. It's about fear, about anxiety, about fretfulness. And it's a fascinating psalm because it's so real it's refreshing in the fact that it's realistic. You know, when, when you go to the bookstores, or I guess these days when you search on Amazon for books on worry or how to overcome anxiety or how to deal with fear, they usually say the same thing, basically. i boiling them all down here. They say, look, the things you worry about probably won't happen. The things you're dreaming about, that you're scared about, very unlikely to happen. So stop worrying about things that aren't probably going to happen. Don't waste your time doing that. You're crippling yourself. Instead, here's what you need to do. Visualize your future. Visualize satisfactory Living. I mean, this is what they tell me when I uh, when I took golf lessons. Every golf lesson was almost the same thing. It was your, your grip's a little. You need to tweak your grip, but really the focus was you need to visualize yourself hitting the ball straight down the fairway. That was the that was the counsel they gave to me. It didn't work. It, they don't go straight in the fairway. And of course, that's a golf example, but it's true for most of our lives. The the advice we get. To deal with worry and fear and anxiety is don't think about all the bad things that could happen. Focus on you living a great future. Is that what David does here? No, it's not. Just think about verse 10. Look at verse 10. Just by way of example. He says, okay, my father and my mother forsake me. They have forsaken me. Now, there's no indication that David's father and mother had actually forsaken him. He says it in verse 3. Though an army encamp against me, though war arise against me. He doesn't say it had encamped against him. He says, even if it did. So what is David doing here? He's doing the opposite of what all the books tell you. He's doing the opposite of what the, the, the culture tells you. He's doing the opposite of what my golf pro told me. He's actually imagining the worst possible things that could happen. He goes so far as to imagine the catastrophes that could happen. How beautiful the Bible is in its realism. It says, you as a Christian can have a way to deal with your fear and your anger and your anxiety by assuming the worst. That an army is against you. I mean, if, if David has this strategy, I think you and I should want to know what it actually means because here's the difference between you and David. David had literal enemies. He had people with swords and spears that wanted to kill him. I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say I hope really strongly you don't have literal enemies who have swords and spears and they want to kill you. I don't think you do. You haven't told me about them. Please do. He had people who who were were literally after his life, and he's able to deal with it. So if he's able to deal with his literal armies, we can deal with our imaginary armies. We can deal with our fears. That's why he says in verse 3, I have so much freedom from anxiety that if a whole army came after me, I I won't be afraid. I'd be okay. And so he really tells a secret here in verse 4. This is where we're going to camp out, I suppose, for this evening. The, the, the key verse here is verse 4. And he, he tells us his strategy. He says his strategy involves three different verbs. And just by the way, those three verbs are going to be the three points of the sermon. Congratulations. Very easy. If you ever forget what, what they are, just look at verse 4. are the three verbs. Dwelling. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord, gazing, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, seeking or inquiring, to to seek and to inquire in his temple. Dwell, gaze, seek. So let's look first at dwelling, verse 4. He says, here's the one thing I ask of God, the one thing of God, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. What does that mean? What does it mean to dwell in the house of the Lord? Now, one of the things you have to realize is that David is not thinking about a physical spot. First of all, he could not dwell in the house of the Lord. Literally, he could not dwell in the tabernacle or in the temple. He he couldn't live there. Only the Levites could be there. And and nobody could live right in the Holy of Holies. David would never have even gone there. He could not have been there. Second, there's a slight problem here because the house of the Lord in David's time was actually split into into two places. The bulk of it, most of the tabernacle worship was in Gibeon. But the Ark of the Covenant, you recall David recovers it, 2 Samuel 6, he recovers the Ark of the Covenant. It was in Jerusalem. It was in a tent that David had pitched for it. You want more details in that tent? 2 Chronicles 1, verse 3 and verse 4. But when David worships at Gibeon, he can still remember, he can still recall the tabernacle we have in Exodus. And so David is not saying, I want to be literally in the tabernacle. I want to live there. He's not saying that. What he's asking for, this is very important, what he's asking for is the unbroken presence of God. What he wants is to experience God's presence without interruption. No static, you know, in, in the signal. We know that because of the two verbs that follow. He wants to look at God's face. He wants to be in God's presence. Now, what does that mean? That's a little bit of a challenge for us because we're good Christians and we know, even we teach our kids, right? Where is God? He's everywhere. Right? Can, can, can I see God? No, but he can see me. Because he's everywhere. He's omnipresent. And so what is David asking for here? Well, I think you understand the difference between being present and being in somebody's presence. You know what the difference is between being present around somebody and being in somebody's presence. If You go to a football game. You go to a concert. I've been to a couple of each in my life. I was present with the quarterback. I was present with a guitarist. But I was not in their presence. I was not face-to-face with them. I, don't actually, I didn't actually get to meet and greet them. I don't know who they are. I was, in their, I was present with them, but I was not in their presence. I wasn't face-to-face. I was far away. And if you're far away, you can't have that kind of relationship. You have to come up face-to-face with somebody. Think about it. When you come up to talk to somebody, do you stare at their kneecap to have a conversation with them? Do you look at their shoulder and just talk to their shoulder? No, if you want to talk to them, you look at them. You have an actual relationship with them. If you want to have a personal interaction. And the Bible says, you may be in nature present with God, But you can never know God's personal presence simply by being on earth. Yes, God is present everywhere, but that doesn't mean you see his face everywhere. You can't know him personally by looking at the Grand Canyon. In other words, the Bible says over and over again that Creation, general revelation, it gives you enough to know about God, but it never gives you enough to know God. (coughs) Not to know him personally. Or to put it in a different way, if you wanted to have a friendship with Henry Ford, you don't go to a Model T car and stick your head in the hood and say, Henry, are you in there? Mr. Ford, I want to talk to you. You don't go to the handiwork. You don't go to the created thing to have a conversation with the designer. In the same way, we don't go to the trees. We don't go to the woods. We don't go to the handiwork of God to have a conversation with God. So what David says here, when he says, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord, what he's saying is, I don't want to know you distantly. I don't want to obey you generally. I don't want to have a kind of vague, inspirational belief in you, God. I want to know you intimately. I want to know you personally. And that's why he says, the one thing I want, I know if I have this one thing, I will be safe. If the thing that I have above all other things, the highest priority, the greatest joy in my life, if that's God, then I'm safe. To put it in a little more technical jargon, David is saying here, my fear is proportional to the vulnerability of the thing I love the most. In other words, if the thing I love the most is vulnerable, I'm going to be really scared. This is the way we work, isn't it? This is the way we work. If the thing you love the most is your health, and your, your health starts to decline, you freak out. You go into a connection fit. You suddenly see the doctor all the time. You're trying to figure out what is the problem with me? Because your health is what the one thing you seek above all else. I mean, you see this in verse 5. Look at verse 5. He says, he'll hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble conceal me under the cover of his tent. You know what his tent is? It's the tabernacle. David says he, he's going to conceal me. And he's not thinking, again, physically, he's not saying he's going to take me to Gibeon or wherever and, and hide me in the literal tabernacle. He, he's not thinking this is like Indiana Jones. If he goes to the actual Ark of the Covenant and opens it up, that all the bad guys are going to be zapped. He, he's not thinking that way. What he's saying is, I'm only safe when you are the one thing I love most of all. Then I'm fearless. It's what Paul says. I mean, this is just the Apostle Paul. This is the New Testament. If God is for you, who can be against you? God's for you, who can be against you? Anything but God. This is a lesson for us. Anything but God and God's will is ultimately vulnerable. And therefore, you'll be full of fear. But if you have God, you'll be fearless. How do you get God then? That's the two other verbs here. The two other verbs that David gives in verse four. How do you get this dwelling? How do you get this joy? Well, first of all, he says, you have to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Now, you have to ask a question here because it was the Old Testament, and God reveals himself in dreams and in visions? Is David talking here about a vision? When David says, I want to gaze upon you, does that mean, should we expect David to have a literal vision that he sees with his eyes? I would say no. There's no indication that David means here every time he goes into the tabernacle, he gets a vision of God. Now, in fact, it means something deeper and far more important. What does it mean to gaze upon the beauty of God? It means that you have what Christians have called communion with God. Or, to put it differently, it means knowing God. It's one of the reasons we're studying Packers, Knowing God. He talks about this. He says there's a key difference between knowing God is holy and experiencing the holiness of God. There is a world of difference between knowing that God is love and experiencing the love of God. I think one of the guys who really laid this out for us was our dear old friend, St. Augustine, the greatest African theologian in the history of the church, you know, you've heard of Augustine. He he lays out in one of his books what it means really to see God and to gaze upon God. He says there are three parts of the gazing, the the seeing God, and he gives them fun Latin names. I'm not going to give you the Latin names. I'll give you the English names. It's a lot easier because we speak English. He says first you have to have retention. You have to retain truth about God. You have to get a truth about God out of the Word. You have to distill the truth. You have to melt it down to its core. And you say, that's God. That's what God is. You see it, you learn it, you know it, you memorize it. This is what we do with our children. We say, memorize this Bible verse. When you're afraid, you can repeat the Bible verse to yourself. That's what we do with the catechism. This is why we train ourselves and our children. You see it, you learn it. But Augustine says, that's not enough. You can't just stay there. Don't stop there. No, no, no. He says, once you get the truth, once you see that God's holy, that God's wise, don't just close your book. Don't just close your phone and say, oh, I made a notation. God is holy. Here's the verse. I learned another attribute of God. Wonderful. No, he says, no. Secondly, you move from retaining it to contemplating it. Retention, contemplation. Number two, you you look at God through the truth. You gaze at God, you use the truth, and you look through the truth, and you look at God. What, what does that actually mean? That sounds kind of abstract. What does it actually mean? It means you start to ask yourself questions. You say, what does this verse show me about God? What does it tell me about God? What does it show me about how marvelous He is? What does it tell me about how holy He is? Do I really understand what it means that He is holy? Do I understand what it means that I'm not holy? Am I living out his love? What false emotions rise up in my heart when I forget that God is holy, for example? What false attitudes or behaviors am I thinking, am I doing because I forget that God is just or God is love? It's what Paul says in Ephesians. You stretch every nerve you have to see God not with the eyes of your eyes, but with the eyes of your heart. You want to see God with the eyes of your heart. You try your hardest. Now Augustine says, "Even that's not enough. Asking yourself questions, probing, letting the truth point you to God. He says, "There's a third thing you need." And he says, "Really, only the Holy Spirit brings this. It's delight. You need to delight in God, right? To retain, contemplate. He says, you need to delight. This is really where we finally are getting into what David means, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. This is how you really know if you've experienced God. I mean, if you spend the time to seek him, if you spend the time to gaze on him, You find that ideas about his holiness and ideas about yourself, well, his holiness begins to comfort you. And your unholiness begins to disturb you. His love begins to thrill you. You know what it means to gaze upon the beauty of something? Because you do it and I do it with things that aren't God. You do it and I do it all the time with things that aren't God. You're thinking about it all the time, even right now. Whatever you're gazing at in your mind's eye, whatever you're thinking, whatever you're turning over, whatever you're mulling over, whatever you're considering, that thing you want. It may be a beach house. It may be a person. And you think what life is going to be like if you get it. You, you gaze on the beauty of it. it Maybe health. It may be all sorts of things. You fill your mind with it. it Maybe Christmas morning. You rest in it. You taste it. You You don't just know it's true, but you are soaking yourself with it. And we do it with everything else but God. And if you want an application point for tonight, here it is. Stop doing with other things. Do it with God. Do that with God. That's the only way to make the real one thing, the real one thing. Gaze on his beauty. David says if you don't gaze upon the beauty of God, you're going to be gazing on the beauty of something else, and therefore you'll be scared. You'll be afraid. You'll be worrying. What will happen if that other thing gets attacked? What will happen if I don't have that other thing? And yet, David says it's not enough just to dwell. It's not enough even just to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. He says, I want to inquire. I want to seek in the temple, in his temple. Now, this is, you may notice the ESV has a footnote here. It says this command to seek is addressed to more than one person. You'll notice they translate it as inquire. It's a very specific, very, very specific Hebrew word. And it means basically to go and get counsel. That's why they use the word inquire. You can use the word seek. I don't think it makes that much of a difference. The meaning is when I come to you, I want to find out what your will is, God. I want to find out what your will is. He wants to obey. He wants to obey God. This is why in verse 11, he says the same thing in different ways. He says, teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path. He's saying the same thing. I want to seek your will. I want to know what it means to obey you. And these really are the two parts of what it means to be a Christian. You gaze upon God's beauty and you seek God's will. And the problem is we do one or the other at best. If you only seek God's will to obey, if you only seek God's law, tell me what to do, God, so I can do it. If That's all you do without gazing on his beauty. You'll be a Pharisee. You'll be a legalist. On the other hand, if you just want to gaze upon God's view, there have been plenty of Christians who have just said, I just want to experience God. I caught the tail, as a good Southern Baptist in the 1990s, I got I got the tail end of Henry Blackaby's Experiencing God. Maybe you all know that book. Blackaby, very famous, uh, I think a brother, pair, that wrote this book called Experiencing God. And it was all about, well, experiencing God. And there's something in it that were very helpful, but... I think one of the issues it had is that it fell into this trap that we all often fall into. We want to have a great experience of God, but we don't want to find out what his word says about our lives. We want to have a mountaintop experience, but we don't want the drudgery of the day-to-day. Let me show you why that won't work. Think about marriage. I think you all know this. 95% of marriage is basically figuring out how you serve the person you married. Because if you want to experience that person's love, and they say, hey, could you do this and this and this? And you say, oof, that's not convenient for me right now. I don't like to do the dishes. And they keep saying, hey, would you do the dishes? Well, guess what's going to happen? You won't be loving them. You won't be loving them. Very quickly. If you don't serve them in the little things. If you don't figure out. They like to have their toothpaste. In a certain place. Or they like, as I discovered recently. They like Crest toothpaste. And you grew up with Crest. You don't like Crest toothpaste. So guess what? kind of toothpaste we have at my home. Crest. It's fine. I'm happy to have Crest toothpaste. But of course, you know this, husbands, wives, that you can't live selfishly in marriage. You can't just walk around and do whatever you want and not try to figure out what is their will. What is the person's will? What do they want You can't just live and not make sacrifices for the other person and then expect to have a wonderful time gazing upon their beauty. You can't not serve them and then expect to have some wonderful marriage experience. Oh, honey, I'm in love with you. That's not how it works. Because a human being is not a computer. You can't kind of plug in, I want your beauty and then just have that. If you want to gaze upon the beauty of the other person. If you want to have that love relationship, you also have to find out the person's will and do it. You remember blind Bartimaeus? What did blind Bartimaeus do? He's blind, he can't do much, but what did he do? He figured out the itinerary of Jesus Christ. Somehow he got a hold of his schedule. He figured out, Certain time, certain day, Jesus of Nazareth will be on this road. I'm blind. I'm just going to camp out here. I'm just going to sit here on this road. And what did he do? He cried out, Lord, have mercy on me. Do You want to experience God? Of course you do. You want to experience God's beauty? Of course you do. You want to experience God's love? Of course you do. Everybody does. How do you get it? You don't get it by running around like a chicken with your head cut off. You pitch your tent on the road that Jesus Christ has said, I'll be there. I'll be on that road. What's that road? It's the road of obedience. It's the road of his his ways. It's the road of seeking him. You have to gaze on the beauty in his temple. You have to go to his temple. That's what David said in verse 5. I want to seek you in your temple. I want to figure out where your will is in your temple. Well, where's the temple? It's not in Jerusalem. You can go there. You can go to the Wailing Wall in Israel. It's not, it's not his temple. Christ says in John 2 that he, he looks at the temple in Jerusalem and he says to the religious leaders, tear this temple down and I will raise it up again in three days. And they looked at him and they said, you are insane. It took 40 years to build this temple. You're going to rebuild it in three days? And the text tells us the temple he was talking about is the temple... Of his body, Jesus is the temple. How is Jesus Christ the temple? If you want to gaze upon, if you want to seek God's will, what David is saying here, you have to seek Jesus Christ. If you want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, you have to go to his temple, you have to go to Jesus Christ. How did David do that? Well, I just said he, he probably didn't have a vision. But it meant that he went and he watched the tabernacle rituals and he saw the beauty of God in the rituals of the Levitical temple and tabernacle. How did that happen? Well, you know what happens in the temple, in the tabernacle. You'll have animals being killed every day. They're, being up, they're up on the block and they're being slaughtered. They're up on the altar. They're being sacrificed. And David saw the beauty of the Lord through the death of an innocent animal. How could that happen? Well, he sees the animals being killed. And he he retains the truth. He retains the truth of God's justice. And he says, here's the God who requires sin to be paid for. Here's a God who's so good, who's so holy. He cannot count our sin. He cannot overlook it. He cannot ignore it. Here's a God who has to deal with evil. He's a good God. He's a just God. He's a holy God. And yet he looks at the sacrifices and he he realizes that God's also a merciful God. He's a God who can't clear the guilty, but he wants to deal with our sins. He wants to deal with our guilt. He wants to forgive us. He wants to find us a way to himself. And here's the point. If David was able to get all that from the tabernacle, how much more of God's beauty do you think you'll get when you look at Jesus Christ? The beautiful thing is that we don't have to be like David and look at the face of a bull being slaughtered for us. The beautiful thing is that we can look at the face of one like us. I mean, that not that Christmas? The beautiful reality about Christmas is the beauty of God in flesh and blood. You can gaze upon someone who looks like you who feels like you, who knows like you. We see the face of the most loving human being ever dying for us. This is, of course, God's temple dwelling with us. David says, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord. And God says, here's my plan, David. I'm going to dwell in your house. I'm going to dwell with you. I'm going to become Emmanuel. I'm going to pitch my tent With y'all people. That's John 14. Or maybe John 14.23 is better. Where Christ says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come and make our home with him. Do you see what David points to? David says, I want to dwell. I want to dwell in God's house. And God says, you can't dwell in my house, but I can dwell with you. I can dwell in you so that you might come and gaze upon my beauty. I will make my home with you so that I can make you a house for my name and that one day you can dwell with me truly in glory. You see, the Bible gives you here an antidote to your anxiety and your fear and your worry, but it's not a band-aid. It's not visualization techniques. It's a new heart. It's regeneration. It's a new way of living. It's a new way of doing every single thing. It's looking at the beauty of God in everything that you see, because everything that you see points back to you, the greatness of the gospel, the greatness of Jesus Christ, and your own weakness. Ian Murray tells us a story of a guy named John Murray not the famous theologian, but John Murray back in the 1800s. He was a Scotsman, and one day he had a a guest visit him for lunch. And uh, the guest asked him, Mr. Murray, what do we have for lunch? He said, well, all we have are some potatoes and salt. And the guest was not being critical he, he was trying to be sympathetic he said you know Mr. Murray those potatoes look pretty poor and John Murray replied there's not one of those potatoes on which I do not see the beauty of, of the blood of Jesus Christ your life will depend as a Christian on how much and what you were able to see And John Murray saw his potato and salt lunch as part of the bounty purchased by his Savior. Maybe in tomorrow's lunchtime meal, probably a lot better than potatoes and salt, you might be able to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, the fact that he purchased you from hell, from wrath, from judgment, for his glory, by his goodness and grace. Let's pray. Lord, we do come before you and ask that you would give us what we seek. That you would give us that one thing needful. That you would give us your son. You would give us that desire to gaze upon your beauty. To seek your ways and your will. That we might be yours forevermore that you would cure us of our fear and our worry, our, our sleepless nights, that you would give us the sleep of those who trust themselves to you. We thank you that you have come and made your tent among us, that you dwell with the lowly, that you promise to raise up the meek. We pray that you would do that, begin that work in us this week. We pray this in the name of our great Savior, Emmanuel. Amen.